Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? Well, it's been a, a really, really quiet week and I in the entertainment business and I mean you know I feel like probably we we might as well just have not bothered with this uh, podcast this week because there's just so little to discuss about anything so yeah you know. I mean, no one's talking about the Oscars or anything right nope and no one's you know no one's no. sending their best wishes to to Bruce Willis in light of of that news that came out this week and we certainly do as well but yeah, definitely, definitely fine. It hasn't been a quiet week at all. Yes, there are things to talk about. We'll see how much we need to talk about all the things that happened at the Oscars, but don't worry, we will. <laughs> yeah, so this is our 162nd episode. It marks the first and definitely not the last time we discussed the slap, and we're not going to be referring to the former NBC drama. So um, before we get into all that, we have a big episode this week. We're joined by Julia showrunner Chris Kaiser, who, if the name sounds familiar, beyond creating Party of Five and its free-form reboot. He was the co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee in the battle with the agencies over uh, packaging fees. So we've got a great interview that's coming up. So, But before we get into this week's top five, because the top five is so crowded, we're going to start off with headlines. To begin with, Bridgerton prequel Young Queen Charlotte has set its cast with India Amartafeo set to play the young version of the character from the original series. Several of the characters from the original series will also be reprising their roles, and uh, Michelle Fairley will have a leading role in the eight-episode drama. Heading into May's upfront season, the broadcast networks are solidifying more of their drama lineups with renewals at ABC for The Good Doctor and The Rookie and at CBS for all three NCIS editions. Um, and in terms of The Rookie, there is also a spinoff starring Niecy Nash in the works at ABC as a pilot this season. Speaking of ABC and speaking of pilots, Gina Rodriguez will make her broadcast TV return with the ABC comedy pilot Not Dead Yet, which is still alive because it's a pilot. <laughs> In other casting, Bella Hadid will make her acting debut or something resembling an acting debut in the third season of TV's top five favorite, Rami. And you, alumna Victoria Pedretti, will lead the cast of Hulu's missing girl drama, Saint X. Joel Edgerton will lead the cast of the Apple drama Dark Matter, based on the book by Blake Crouch, who will serve as showrunner. And no, this is not a revival or reboot or anything related to the former Siffy series of the same name. Siffy, still funny. Quibi, still funny. Yes. And wrapping up headlines, for those keeping track at home, TNT's Snowpiercer has changed showrunners again, this time for its fourth season. The show is on its third showrunner after as many seasons. It had two different pilot directors and was briefly earmarked for TBS. So yeah, the, the, the wheels on that train keep moving with a lot of different people staring at it. On the other hand, who seriously would have guessed when all of those things were happening before it ever premiered that we would get to a season four? 
Like that alone to me. me seems vaguely remarkable. So good for them, I suppose. Kudos, TNT exactly. and Snowpiercer. Sure. And with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. The Oscars were a thing that happened, but while some people are talking about Apple, not Netflix becoming the first streamer to win Best Picture for Coda, the biggest headline, obviously, is the slap heard around the world. Dan, I would mute the words Will Smith if there wasn't a very, very good Dodger catcher with the same name. And also the creator of a show that I'm going to be talking about in uh, Critics Corner. There, there are many, many Will Smiths in the world, and all of their uh, Google alerts have Gone to shit this week. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a week for the, the season finale of Bel Air on Peacock, too, huh? Say. That, too? The, all of these things, and yeah. Um, God, there, there are so many other things to talk about relating to the Oscars that it's tempting to go through the rest of the telecast and talk about all of the other things that went wrong because... To me, there were so many things that went wrong, like the song and dance in memoriam segment where the director pretty much forgot to put the camera on the screen for the entire time. And so it was only after the fact that people were like, oh, that person got forgotten and that person got forgotten. But, you know, whatever that happens, that happens every time. And it's how it goes. Uh there was the pre-fiasco about all of the uh, categories that were going to be done before the show. And, you know, the Academy and the producers made a big deal about how, well, what that was going to accomplish was it was going to allow the show to move faster and to come in at under three or at exactly three hours. And instead, the show was three hours and 46 minutes or something. And while certainly some of that can be blamed on the thing we'll get to in a minute or two, um, not all of it can be blamed on that. Uh, and my policy on that, as I said in my review, and as I've said other places as well, is that's the kind of thing where there were no two ways about it. Either if it worked, maybe you negotiate and you go, okay, that's a thing that happened and we can find a way to do it again. But if it did not work on the one level that they wanted to claim it was going to work, which was saving time, and it did not then you don't do that again because you piss people off in the industry for absolutely no reason. There was just no reason. It was not a good idea. It was just an idea. If it didn't work, it need not be returned to again. And also, all it did was it made time for totally stupid shit, like the, uh, the Twitter polls for best movie moment that allowed the Flash enters the Flashverse to be voted as the best movie moment in history or some such idiotic whatever. And then for Army of the Dead to be crowned as the fan favorite, hey, at least it edged out whatever the marginal unreleased Johnny Depp movie was. That crap didn't work. There were the two supposed tributes to things, uh, the tribute to James Bond, which was introduced by three extreme athletes rather than bringing out the four living James Bonds, something that would have gotten a freaking standing ovation. Instead, they couldn't do that. Uh, there was the tribute to The Godfather, in which only Francis Ford Coppola spoke. Robert De Niro and Al Pacino stood behind him. They showed some clips, and that was that, and left me wondering if you're honoring the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, why you bring out Robert De Niro, who was in Godfather 2, but was not in Godfather 1 at all, when 
there are living people from that movie you could have brought out. You could have brought out uh, James Caan, Diane Keaton, Robert Duvall, and and Al Pacino, along with Francis Ford Coppola, and people would have cheered and whatever. So that didn't work. Um, people are ticked off about them changing the lyrics to We Don't Talk About Bruno. I'm not, but people are, so that's fine. Um, there were so many things about the telecast that didn't work. And then, you know, you have to very quickly acknowledge that there were things that were great. Ariana DeBose winning and, and being yeah. the trailblazer in the way that she was, was wonderful. And uh, then using her acceptance speech to acknowledge as much was really great and a cool note to start to open the show for sure yeah exactly that was, that was how he started the show and at that point because there was also the beyonce performance on the tennis court that was a lot of fun at, at that point we were all like yay this this could work this could be an entertaining telecast then the hosts as a group were not all that great and amy schumer was actually i thought pretty funny when she was solo but whatever and then the host vanished it's all the same stuff anyway so ariana debose Great moment. Um, Troy Kotzer winning and getting his interpreter choked up. Great moment. Th there were great moments. And, you know, then you get into the show. And so, once you get to the thing that we haven't discussed yet, the show was already going off the rails. And then after that, everything just got lost. So everyone who won an award after the unfortunate thing that happened, it, it just got lost there was there was nothing to be done so you know quest love gets hosed and people were only a third paying attention to his acceptance for summer of soul which is a great movie that people should watch it was a great speech that people should listen to we were all so distracted by it at that point you know who can even process what was happening um you know jessica chastain who probably didn't deserve an oscar for that thing but definitely deserves all the awards in general because she's awesome um if she won, and I thought the end of her speech was very powerful, it got lost. Coda winning Best Picture got lost because Chris Rock came out and made a series of fairly hacky jokes. Um, they, they just were. I don't know who wrote the material for those bits. I don't know who thought that that was what the show that was already running solid 20 minutes overtime at that point. I don't know who thought what it needed was five minutes of strained banter. Apparently, certainly, Will Smith thought it did not need that. Um, and the blowback from the slap heard around the world is continuing because while we can debate extensively, and, you know, some people have done some great writing on it, uh, you know, sort of the, the context of the slap. And so some smart writers, whether it's Wesley Morris, whether it's uh, Sarai McDonald, lots of great writers have done some great writing on this. Um, and I just don't want to delve into it. At this point, though, we've reached the point at which it becomes more and more clear that regardless of who was to blame or whatever in the situation, Will Smith was to blame. You don't commit battery on national TV. When you're a role model. Regardless. No, you just, model. Let's just say regardless. Um, the way that the Academy handled it was very clearly wrong. The way they And that's handled obviously still being debated. <laughs> you know, now as we record this, it's Thursday afternoon and you're still getting new details coming about, you know, where it's like, did they ask him to leave? Did they not ask him to leave? Who suggested he stay? Like, it's just the, the total handling of this is not 
cohesive in any way. And the contradictions of it are what's making it worse and worse and worse as it goes along. So, you know, initially the on on Sunday night, the Academy put out a stupid tweet about we don't condone violence, um, which is was total nonsense. Um, But then the subsequent response, clearly. But the subsequent conversations have just been so strange and such a semantic tap dance and everybody is trying to make sure that anything they do is justified by things they've said before. So all, just in the past 12 to 16 hours, there's been the arc of we told him to leave. TMZ reported that the heads of the academy told him to leave. Then TMZ reported this morning that he was not actually told to leave, that the Academy was lying, but the Academy is going to say somewhere in the semantic tap dance between told him to leave, asked him to leave, suggested him to leave. There's a truth. There's been discussion that Will Packer, the show's producer, definitely told him to stay. But I'm pretty sure at some point in the last two days, he was people were saying that he had told him to leave. I don't know it all ends up becoming fodder for when the Academy eventually decides what to do with him. And everything has been floated in various different speculative reports and whatever from banishing him from the Academy entirely, uh, confiscating his Oscar, all of that. Um, I don't think there's any chance he's going to have his Oscar confiscated. Nor do no, I think- not when Harvey Weinstein and, yeah. and Roman Polanski continue to have theirs. Exactly. I, I do not think he should. I This this is not what it is. He, he won the Oscar. He was voted the Oscar and plenty of awful people. It's a, it's a little bit to to go back to one of our favorite things uh, for listeners. It's a little bit like the are we sanctimonious about Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens getting into the Hall of Fame? Wait, but what about all of the players from the 50s and 60s who used greenies? Uh, and if there's a um, if there's a morals clause that we abide by, how do we deal with all of the virulent racists who are in the Hall of Fame from the 30s and 40s and probably 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s? And Lots of virulent racists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, how, how do you deal with that? So, no, the answer is not to, to confiscate his his trophy unless you're also going to confiscate the trophy from all of the other people who are, in some cases, less problematic in many cases, many, many, many cases, more problematic, et cetera, not happening. I do think that saying we ask him to leave and he refused is a way of giving cover to a suspension of some sort or an expulsion of some sort with the possibility of of return. Like, I think this I think it sets them up to say, Okay, he's been he's being removed from the academy for a year. Oh no. Um he's being removed from the academy for 5 years and then he can apply for reinstatement, whatever. Or he's being removed entirely and he can apply for reinstatement in 2 years or something. I think it's He's not going to present on the Oscar stage next year. As of basically as of what the now, punishment is sounds like it's going to like As it of now be. it's hard to imagine a situation in which that could happen. And yet what I've been saying this entire time is so much of it is going to come down to the inevitable Oprah interview and and how things are are spun in that and so much of it is going to come down to what Chris Rock wants to do. Um our colleague Robin Barr was uh was at Chris Rock's concert in concert show, whatever Stand up show, yeah. Comedy concert, I believe is what is oh, uh, what we, 
is what I've been told that a fine HBO Max television show and a beloved HBO Max character referred to it as comedy concert. Uh, yes, Robin was at his show in Boston last night, and he made a joke at the top uh, about his weekend and about how he didn't have anything he wanted to say yet, but that when he did, it would be serious and also funny, which is probably true. So I, I feel like a, a lot of the acrimony really of the last 24 hours has made a simple resolution less and less likely. I, I do think some sort of extreme discipline is going to be required. Anyway, it was all a fiasco. Was it the worst disaster in Oscars history? Was it the worst fiasco in Oscars history? Um, you know, look, you, you well, go back. It wasn't back. great. <laughs> it, it wasn't. Yes, exactly. It, but exactly. ratings were up. What, did, did this, did the slap have an influence ratings or affect ratings or some reports that it, you know, a couple hundred thousand people tuned in afterwards to see what he would, how he would acknowledge when he won the inevitable uh, actor, uh, best actor award. But, I, don't know. I, I, don't know. I mean, yes. So, it was so, still the second lowest rated Oscars. In it all, it all was, on the other hand. And last I was wrong. Time. The ratings did go up. Um, it, you you were wrong. I was right. Except that as someone pointed, someone uh, on one of my social media posts um, agreed with you. And when I went back and glanced at what the ratings had been the year before, I think in my mind, I thought they were even lower than they were. And I don't know that if I'd known that they were a hair over 10 million, if I would have predicted that they would have gone up. But ultimately, I was I was roughly right. And I don't think and and first of all, while, yes, there are some metrics that seem to suggest that there was some looky loo curiosity after the slap. Overall, the ratings bump had nothing to do with the slap. Cannot emphasize that enough. It is not the way ratings work. If there is something catastrophic that happens two hours and 15 minutes into a telecast that is live, that is not the thing that boosts ratings because that's not how they work. So yes, but uh, so, but that means that, you know, there will be <laughs> the Oscars producers in ABC will be doing a postmortem regardless. <laughs> the postmortem is now going to be rather dominated by one specific thing. Under other circumstances, it would have been a question, okay, well, we actually did raise ratings a little. What can we learn from that? I, I truly don't know what you can learn from it. I, I think Have it, Amy Schumer dress up as Spider-Man and, and dangle her from the rafters? But see, that was two hours into a telecast, so that wasn't what raised the ratings either. Anyway, I don't know. It's uh, it was it was a telecast that started promisingly, went off the rails early and then continued off the rails, went into a gulch, flipped over repeatedly, exploded, even though there was nothing flammable on the train. Yeah, it, it whatever it was, it wasn't good anyway, and it got worse. Can we be done talking about this now? Yes, yes, yes. Please, please, please. Number two. Up next. <laughs> <sighs> up next, the streaming wars are heating up as some of the biggest franchises and most anticipated new shows are going head to head. This week, we've got news that the Obi-Wan Kenobi Disney Plus show has moved its premiere date up a, uh, back a few days from Wednesday, May 25th to Friday, May 27th. And that's significant because... Well, May 27th also happens to be the long-awaited return of Stranger Things, which is back after a three-year absence with volume one of its fourth and penultimate season. And that's only three years after season three aired. 
At the same time, HBO this week announced that the long, long, long gestating Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon from creator George R. R. Martin and Ryan Condal will debut on Sunday, August 21st on both HBO and HBO Max. And that's really, really, really close. Not quite as close as uh, the Stranger Things um, Obi-Wan Kenobi thing, but close enough to the Friday, September 2nd debut of an even longer gestating adaptation of a fantasy a series. More expensive show. <laughs> yes, that would be Amazon's Lord of the Rings adaptation. So, yeah. What what do we make of these? And uh, is it mutually assured uh, destruction or... Is there room for everybody? I mean, I'm sure there's room for everybody, but I think they're not calling it the streaming wars for nothing. You know, it's it really is a battle of eyeballs. You know, it's like we've talked for so long, you know, in the in the old days, in the old days about scheduling. Right. And, you know, it's like a lot of people were, were tweeting, you know, like, oh, this was like Chicago Hope going head to head with ER right back in the day. Of course. Yeah. Scheduling matters. Right. Because you're on at the exact same time on rival networks. I mean, these are pretty close to that. And, you know, I think what's interesting here is that this is just going to be a battle of word of mouth. And honestly, none of these four shows need any help. And I think it's interesting to, to it's basically going to be a battle of bragging rights and trying to read the tea leaves of ratings and press releases that basically have no data whatsoever in it. You know, it's like, oh, Stranger Things, we had, you know, you know, here's this math equation that tells you how many how many minutes were, were watched. And we're putting that out on our own platform on the Netflix top 10 website. So you can read all about that. And then, you know, the Nielsen streaming ratings will, will make, you know, try and, and make sense of all of this stuff. And it's just like at, at this point also, there, there's no clear winner. You know, it's like they're all basically battling for media attention. And all four of these shows are not going to have to try and, and worry about that because the Internet is going to be obsessed with all of them. You know, in, in terms of the Emmys, it's it's interesting because it's at least a technical showdown between Lord of the Rings and House of the Dragon. You imagine that both of these shows are going to be big players in those technical categories um, because those are, again, it's Emmys 2023. So, I, you know, it, it, it really is a streaming war, right? You know, th that's why they call it that. It's everyone wants to be, you know, to be the number one platform. Everyone wants to be the must have, have to pay for it platform. And it's like, as long as Amazon gives me free shipping on 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 all the crap that I order, I'm not, I'm gonna have Amazon. You know, it's like they still have the best value for for the money. You know, but everything else, it's like Stranger Things is not gonna have to battle for an audience. It's just it's just gonna basically dominate. You know, th those two periods of time. So. Yeah, I, I think the the showdown between Obi Wan and Stranger Things is probably less dramatic for me because you know, whether or people are going to watch Obi-Wan, but also it'll be on the next week. It'll be on the week after that. It'll be on the week That's after not even, that. They're going to have two episodes in the first week. So yeah. it, it launches Friday, May, May 27th. And then just a few days after that, the following Wednesday, you're going to have the second episode of Obi-Wan. So you've, that's definitely going to knock, you know, put a little bit of a dent in the Stranger Things narrative. So maybe it's going to be like, oh, here's Obi-Wan and people are going to go nuts and they love it. Or who knows it'll if it'll be one of the, the lesser critically appreciated Star Wars shows. And who knows what people are going to say about about Stranger Things? It's been off the air for three years, obviously a massive franchise. 
it's marching towards Zenday. And Netflix announced the season five will be its end, but the fourth season is going to be split in half. So will it be a battle of comparing narratives? Will it be like, oh, critics like this one, but not this one. So watch this instead. But, but then you've got all the episodes dropping on, you know, of Stranger Things, or at least the first half at the same time that Obi-Wan is a slow roll. So. Which, so what I'm saying is that, you know, maybe it would delay the binge process of Stranger Things by two hours, but people are still going to, it's still going to be one of those shows where people are going to watch it all that weekend and it's, it's tale will be done by Monday. That'll just be what it is. Whereas Obi-Wan will have a couple more weeks after that with the near showdown between the Game of Thrones thing and the Lord of the Rings thing, both of those to me people are going to tune in immediately. There's no question that you're going to get eyeballs week one on both of those shows. I think both of those shows also, though, are going to have a qualitative bar that they're going to have to reach. I, I really think there's going to be the potential for extreme irritation and a quick drop off if either one of them is is not good. I think people will definitely tune into both to see what they are. But then in both cases, they're going to discover that Neither one is the world they know. It's going to be the world tangential or parallel to the world they know or before or whatever it is. It's, you know, it's simply not it is not Bilbo Baggins and Gandalf and all of that. It is a different set of characters. It's and it's not Daenerys and and Littlefinger and all that. It's a different set of characters. So either they're going to survive on their own or not. But those will be kind of week two, week three, week four questions. So by the time that the Lord of the Rings thing actually premieres, I think there's a, you know, there will have been a couple episodes of, <laughs> of of the Game of Thrones prequel. People could have already decided by that point that they want absolutely no part of it, or it could be absolutely fantastic and it could be a juggernaut and it could be, uh, you know, burgeoning and all of that. But I really think that with those two shows, after week one, quality is going to play a major role. And having seen no more than two minutes of either show. And by that, I, re I mean trailers. I, I can't begin to speculate on what either one of them is, but, you know, it's going to be really you look at the, interesting. At that point, you look at the at the platform's track record and, and where they are with genre shows and how they handled it. And obviously, you know, Game of Thrones is, you know, has a, a massive Emmy streak behind it and the weight of HBO and the, the a ton of pressure to deliver. And Amazon has sunk all of that money and already renewed the show and now it's changing location. Okay, there's so much going on behind the scenes for for both of these shows that the the thing that that gets me the most out of the, out of the scheduling is that you've got the finales of both shows airing within two days of each other. You've got House of the Dragon running for 10 episodes ending on October 23rd. Lord of the Rings, it's a week again, a weekly rollout, eight episodes. October 21st. So within two days of each other, you've got both seasons ending. So these two shows are we're already going to be tied together because, as we said at the beginning of the year, one of the biggest TV narratives of 2022 is the battle to be the next Game of Thrones. Which one is going to be the bar when it comes to the the new fantasy drama when you've got all this time and all this money invested in the future of the Game of Thrones IP, the future of the Lord of the Rings IP? You know, both of these are, are big, big, big expensive franchises and big priorities for their respective um, corporate parents. And you, there's already, you know, the, the original deal for the Lord of the Rings was, I think, for five seasons plus multiple spinoffs. 
HBO and, and Warner Media is already working on them. There's a number of other Game of Thrones offshoots in development. You've got animated shows in development. There's so much going on at, that both of these really have to work creatively. And in terms of the, the longer overarching sense of things to, to really continue on, you know, I mean, I, but at, at the same time, you know, not really to continue on, but because they're 100 percent going to continue on. And Lord of the Rings is already renewed sight unseen. There's it'd be a massive story if House of the, of the Dragon gets canceled. You know, I remember how big it was when the when the first spinoff or prequel didn't go. They filmed the pilot, had great a great cast attached to it, and then it just didn't go anywhere, right? And they and HBO killed it. And they're like, well, let's do this one instead, and more and more tie it in. So both of these are likely to continue on. Both are big bets, and and really, how will we will we know what what's a success and what's not? Amazon is not going to reveal any of that data. Maybe HBO will, but you've still got the HBO Max streams on top of all of it. So it's going to be a wait and see, and let's see what the reviews are. Maybe this is going to be a battle of the, of the Rotten Tomatoes thing. You know, I, I don't know. But e either way, it, it's a showdown. So from summer months that we're very optimistic to get to eventually to a spring month that we're actually up to now. Number three. Up third, while House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings are a long way off, April does have a ton to offer. In addition to being the start of the Major League Baseball season, which you obviously know Dan and I are both going to be watching and enjoying, you've got a lot of high-profile scripted series coming. Those include, and I'm going to go through these again alphabetically, Amazon has The Outlaws, Outer Range of Very British Scandal, Season 2 of Undone, AMC debuts 61st Street, and the final season, at least the first part, of Better Call Saul. Apple has Slow Horses, the anthology series Roar, plus Shining Girls. Mayans is back for more on FX. HBO has one of our favorites, a black lady sketch show, plus Barry David si and David Simon's We Own This City. And if you haven't read Rebecca Keegan's great cover with the star of Barry, Bill Hader, that's definitely something you should click on over at THR.com. Um, meanwhile, HBO Max has Tokyo Vice, The Garcias, and The Flight Attendant, which I'm very excited about the latter. Season two of Woke, Under the Banner of Heaven, are coming to Hulu. Then at Netflix, you've got The Ultimatum, uh, Elite, one of my favorites, Anatomy of a Scandal, Russian Doll, which we're going to have a great interview with Natasha Leone coming up in April. And then you've got the final season of Grace and Frankie over at Paramount Plus, season two of iCarly, and then The Godfather making of behind the scenes drama, The Offer. Showtime has The First Lady and The Man Who Fell to Earth. I'm so excited for the latter because Jenny Lumet, and if you haven't heard, listened to our Jenny Lumet interview, you absolutely should. She is easily one of our favorite guests. And that would be in episode 107 from February 2021. Um, and elsewhere, wrapping up, Stars has Watergate drama Gaslit starring, eh, I don't know if you've heard of these people, but Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. Dan, this month is packed. Yep. It is another busy, busy, busy month. And it's another month that is typified or bankrolled or anchored by or some word, I'm not really sure what word, by a lot of shows that have been gone for a long time that are good to have back. So, you know, the past couple months, we've seen better things return after a long uh, absence. We've seen um, Atlanta return after many years absent. And the things I'm looking forward to most in April are the returning things. So, you know, it's uh, it is definitely Barry, which has been gone for way, way too long. Uh, it is definitely 
the final season or the first half of the final season of Better Call Saul. Very much looking forward to that. Those are two shows that are always among my favorite shows of any given year. Uh, the Flight Attendant was one of the true surprises of a couple of years ago and uh, very, very interested to see how it's going to, I don't know, do anything in its second season. Uh, but even that is sort of a minor detail compared to Russian Doll, which had such an absolutely perfect first season and reached the end. And it did not feel as if there was any need for a second season. And yet a second season is coming this month and it's not a review to say it's very, very, very interesting. Um, so yeah, so those are the returning things. And those are the things that I am most pumped for. Um, but then there are just all of these interesting things. You know, Very British Scandal is not really a sequel to Very English Scandal, but it's some of the same producers, and it's got a spectacular cast, Claire Foy, Paul Bettany, etc. And, you know, that's bound to be interesting. Undone. God, I'm just, these are all returning shows that I keep coming back to. A lot of the most interesting shows the past few years are coming back this month. So, okay, so when it comes to new things, what am I looking forward to? Uh, like you, I'm looking forward to The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, I've seen one episode. Very, very interesting. Uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is uh, giving a really interesting performance in it. I, I think it is uh, it is aggressive and cool and weird what he's doing on that show. Um, but you have Shining Girls on Apple, which is Elizabeth Moss, who I don't want to say her track record is flawless, but it, it borders on flawless. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the stuff she's done on TV, whether it's from West Wing to Mad Men to uh, to Handmaid's Tale, it, it is hard for me to think of Miss Steps by Elizabeth Moss on TV. And so uh, very much looking forward to that. It ought to be a great part. I'm finishing up the book right now. Uh, I will talk about Slow Horses in a few minutes because it's actually coming out this week. Um yeah, you know, final season of Grace and Frankie. Uh, so we we send out um, our our love and condolences to our colleague Mia, who uh, is the the biggest Grace and Frankie fan I know. So um, I, I hope that she's prepared for this this moment. Uh, yeah, and then you've just got so many great actors coming on TV this month, from Viola Davis and the First Lady to uh, Courtney B. Vance and Sixty First Street to. Uh, Josh Brolin in the Outlaw in in Outer Range rather, um, got Michael Mann who's the big talent behind Tokyo Vice because otherwise you showcase Ansel Elgort but in soon instead I'm thinking of that as the Ken Watanabe and Rachel Keller show but you do you, uh, yeah, so many freaking television shows for April. Um, we've got some good interviews already lined up. We've got some potentially good interviews circling or gestating going to be a, a wild month yeah i mean i'm i'm stoked you mentioned the flight attendant um i already gave props to elite which i think i've talked about on this show many 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 times but yeah and it's, it's just again another jam-packed month so lots to look forward to coming up <sighs> up next it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Number four. Our guest this week is Chris Kaiser, the co-creator of Fox's Party of Five and its short-lived freeform update. Kaiser, whose Netflix favorite, The Society, was among the shows unrenewed during the pandemic, co-chaired the Writers Guild's agency's negotiating committee during its battle over packaging fees with the talent agencies. Kaiser joins us this week to discuss his new HBO Max show, Julia, which examines the life of Julia Child. Thanks so much for joining us this week, Chris. Uh, It's really nice to be here. So let's start at the beginning with Julia. So this show began as a package at CAA back in 2018 with with you set to supervise another writer, Daniel Goldfarb. Um, And again, it was Lionsgate and Three Arts and everybody. Um, You know, as someone who was the face of the WGA in the battle over packaging fees, was the principle of the show's packaging something that rubbed you the wrong way at the time? You know, here's the thing. We we made a conscious decision at the Guild when we were beginning the agency campaign that the battle to end packaging would not be a show-by-show, showrunner-by-showrunner conversation. Um, I had not had my shows packaged uh, for a long, long time. Interestingly, by the way, when we did it the first time on for show Party of Five, the name I did, it was not political. We had no point that we didn't know enough. We just knew we needed the money on the screen. And we just thought, well, we'll pay our commission and don't take the $30,000 that we can use. So I had not been packaged for a long time. But um, in this case, I actually had an explicit conversation with the Guild and said, look, I've got some shows and they're going and they, I didn't, they are projects that I have joined and the package began before I did. And the decision was not just for me, but for other people that we weren't going to fight that, you know, incident by incident, we're going to fight it globally. And so, no, I mean, did I want it not to be the case? Yes. Was I going to interrupt, you know, the effort to end packaging in general with a, you know, a a fight to end it here? No. That's fair. You know, at at the time, you know, sources told, told me that you learned of CAA attaching a packaging fee to Julia once HBO Max expressed interest in the show. Um, was is is that accurate? I mean, can you walk us through a little bit more of, of the timeline and and when you knew and what? Uh... I have to admit to you, I I don't even remember. I mean, it's so many years ago now. We're talking like yeah. four years ago, and what the order is. So whether I found that out afterward and thought, well, that's you know that's just the way the world is, or whether I knew before, I I, I don't know. But there was nothing. The thing is, I, if it had been my idea and I'd said I want to make a show about Julia, and here are the here are the parameters. It's not going to get packaged. That would have been one thing. But I was asked to come in and supervise a project that a writer whom I've known and cared about for a long time was writing, Daniel Goldfarb. We 
you know, worked together on Tyrant. And so I, I did not, I had the power to walk away from the television show and say, I'm not going to be part of anything that's packaged, but I didn't have the power to end a package at that, at that point. And, and, you know, I gave a lot of years, not just me, but a lot of people to a fight and packaging and it, and it, was global, but it would never have ended these anyway, as we said. Right. We, yeah. Those things were all grandfathered. No one had to walk away from any project. Look, I got into plenty of trouble um, mm-hmm. with, at some point. It wasn't even about this show. It was actually about a different show that I had packaged. That yeah, State of up, Affairs. State of Affairs, right, which was an entirely entirely different thing. And that became pretty ugly. Uh, so you, you mentioned that State of Affairs got, got pretty, pretty ugly. Um, as far as I can remember, I, the last thing I think I heard, this is, again, you know, a few years ago, plus, you know, the last two years have felt like 10. So I had heard that it was possibly going to Apple, but when you say it got ugly, can you kind of expand on, on what happened? Oh, I mean, that, well, well, we we eventually, we pitched it a bunch of places and HBO Max was interested and Apple was interested and we eventually went to HBO, uh, HBO with it. When the transition happened at HBO, the project didn't go forward. So it's not, it, I mean, I, I, I did that with Anna Fishko and I love working with Anna. We've done a bunch of shows together. It's a thing that I would like to do at some point. That got ugly because it turned out it came to light and this was not something I knew in, uh, beforehand, that Chernin, the company f- with whom we were working, I, I knew Jeno Topping for a long mm-hmm. time, and, and I had a relationship there as well. They had a production services deal with um, Endeavor Content. And so there was a lot of to do about the idea that I would be standing up and saying, we shouldn't have you know, affiliated production companies to, with agencies. And yet I was, had made a deal with Endeavor content to do the show. The truth is I, I never met Endeavor content. They were not part of the the development process. We were six or seven months into this. By the time I knew that it predated not only the agency campaign, um, but any involvement, official involvement I had with the guild. So I just had a project that was ongoing, um, and had Endeavor content attached as, you know, doing business affairs and things like that. And so that got used against me. You can decide whether it was rightly or wrongly by people who said that I was being disingenuous, but, uh, you know, I, I tried to express, so it's very difficult to express these things nowadays, that that wasn't actually the case, that I did not make a deal with Endeavor content, that I was working with another writer, that we had an ongoing show, that no writer in the guild was being asked to give up projects that were in existence in order for us to fight this fight, that we did not principally have an argument against the existence of of these independent production co- entities that they should not be affiliated with the agencies. That's what ended up happening. And the show never ended up happening. So there was, it was a, you know, the, the agency, I'm really proud of what happened in the agency campaign, but there was a lot of emotion and people said and did things. And I think people got angry at me and that's okay. I mean, that's part of the battle. Yeah, we, we ended up, I think it ended up going the right way. And, and there are so many more, more battles to come. Absolutely. You know, and, and the last that I'll, I'll mention on the packaging front now before we get into the nuts and bolts, or I can say all the ingredients of Julia, see what I did there, um, is really, you know, when you look at, at how, the, the, you know, packaging helped Julia get to the, to the screen and how it kind of hurt state of affairs, and now that you're a little bit farther removed from the battle with the, the agencies, in in hindsight, do you how do you think packaging played a role in helping to get Julia and, and a number of other shows made? And how has that changed in the last, you know, year or two since the affiliated well, studios has has declined? I don't have any 
I don't have any sense that packaging had anything at all to do with getting Julia made. Julia got made because a woman at Three Arts named Kimberly Carver came up with an idea of doing, idea of doing this. And with Erwin Stoff, they began to develop it. And they hired a writer. They met with many writers. And they eventually hired a writer named Daniel Goldfarb to do it. And Daniel and I had had a long relationship. And when the conversation happened about who would be the showrunner and supervise that, that I don't know whether Daniel or Dan Halstead, who was his manager or somebody else recommended me, but the idea of doing that was was incredibly exciting for me to work with Daniel to do this project. And we began to develop it together with Lionsgate and Three Arts. At that point, the agencies didn't have I mean, it's, a, I mean, it's not an attack on the agencies. It's just not a part of the process the agencies deal with. We we developed it. We pitched it a lot of places. Every place said no except for HBO Max. We owe that to Sarah Aubrey uh, and Susanna Makos and David Ruby, who believed in it. Eventually, Casey as well, who got involved. That happened because of that. Um, the show didn't get picked up because of anyone making a call. They would not have picked up a show because of that, nor do they cancel shows because of that. So I don't the the connection of not neither the sense that there was some agency that got part of the back end and and a piece of the production budget um, neither was that relevant nor was the even the the convolution of both the idea of packaging and putting talent together daniel and i worked together because we knew each other um we've known each other for we've known each other since we started even i think even before tyrant when we started working on tyrant so i don't think it had anything to do with it and i don't think that you know whatever happened at state of affairs at hbo max they'd have to explain that to you i mean um or to all of us i we didn't ask i mean those things happen you know the mandates change mm-hmm. right? I, I think and, and that's fine. I mean, I look, I... Yeah, especially with it, when you have executive regime changes, et cetera. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So that's just the way it works. So I, I just don't think packaging is relevant to all of that stuff. The problem is, I think for most writers, in most cases, the, the institution of packaging, the idea that agencies would take money for in all those ways didn't end up having as much to do, very much to do with success or failure. An agency would say, we worked harder and we would say, well, we all pay you our 10%. What, what did you do for the 10% um, if, if you needed to get paid more for that? So, but I don't want to read, look, I'm not angry at, uh, at this point, the thing is all done. Um, and my old agent, although we don't work together and I are still friends and, and, and we have so much more to worry about at the guild and writers do and other, you know, other creative talents in the industry and the way the, uh, the industry is changing. And, and, but I'm not an official spokesperson for the guild, so I cannot speak about where that goes from here. I just know that there's, there's always work to be done. And mostly for me and for Daniel, we're just focusing on making a show right now. Right. And let's get into Julia. So I remember when I reported this, um, that it was originally Joan Cusack was going to play Julia Child. Um, so what happened there? She just decided that she didn't want to. At some point, um, she had had a, you know some differences about the script late in the process, and just eventually decided that where we were going, where she wanted to take the the part, um, weren't the same. And so that was it. Was not a long drawn out process, um, but she just stepped away from it, and that was yeah. well. Joan feels almost like intuitive casting. Like I close my eyes, I can imagine what. Joan Cusack as Julia Child looks and feels like. Sarah Lancashire, as spectacular an actress as she is, is perhaps not intuitive in the same way. When did her name come up in conversations and who had to be convinced that she was right? You guys or her? 
I'll go back to the beginning of that question. So Joan decided she didn't want to be part of the project in December of 2019. And we were moving toward production in March of 2020, production that obviously didn't end up happening at that point. (laughs) We had very little time left, and it was very clear that the most important job we had to do was to find someone to pay Julia. And you're exactly right, Daniel, that the issue for us, I think, and for the network was that Joan felt intuitively, like she just felt like she seemed like Julia Child. I had no idea how she would have played her. Um, she's a wonderful actress. It doesn't matter anymore. If you saw her on, sh- on the first couple early seasons of Shameless, I feel like that was like a, just a sliver of what she could have done. Yeah, exactly. So she's she's wonderful, but um, but it didn't happen. And then we had to figure out wh- whom we would replace her with. And so a list was made, um, both by our casting directors, Sharon Bialy, Gohar Gazazian, and Stacia uh, Kimler, and also... Um, at Ulan Deloey and Sarah Aubrey at HBO Max. And it was a pretty long list. And there was nobody who, in some sense, looked like Julia Child, right? There was no one who said, well, that's the obvious choice. As it turned out in, in conversations, the only person that we all felt had the stature and ability to go to and ask if she was interested was Sarah Lancashire. Um, we knew her from Happy Valley and from Last Tango in Halifax, though obviously those roles are hardly prototypes for playing Julia Child. <laughs> She's just one of the greatest actresses in the world, right? And she she has a she has a dramatic weight to her. We'd seen her. She was on the London stage in the West End as the female lead in Betty Blue Eyes, which is a show that was book was written by two men who I worked for at the very beginning of my career, um, Dan Lipman and Ron Cowan. You can see her perform this, the showstopper number from that. We, we know she has comic talent. We knew she had stage presence. We went to Sarah and, and I can't tell you what her private process was, but very quickly she expressed interest in doing it. Um, and she's been incredibly wonderful about her dedication to it all the way through. I'll say this. One thing is that I think, though there was never a point in which we could bridge the uncertainty gap between does that great actress end up getting on camera on stage on that first day and fully embody Julia? It was always going to be a leap of faith in, in some sense. But the fact that Sarah believed that she could do it actually said a lot for us because she's just not the kind of person who takes on something that 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 she can't accomplish. Even having said that, there were a couple of months of her reading and talking to the network and us talking about what Julia was. And that actually all fell by the wayside, to be honest with you. There was a point at which we all sort of agreed, we're not going to have conversations with Sarah about exactly how Julia is going to sound, how she's going to portray her. We're going to let her go off and do the work she needs to do, watch the tapes if she needs to, listen to her voice, read whatever she wants. We never asked her what she read or listened to. And she was going to come back and embody that. And there was actually, and and so I, I think, 
I, I can't, I didn't feel tremendous anxiety because I think you, you're just as somebody who's a, you know, in my position, you're always taking a leap of faith by casting actors, you know, something, but not everything. We often cast people without reading. B.B. Newworth was cast without reading her. David Hyde Pierce was cast without reading him. They were both the prototypes for this character, although not at the same time, by the way, the idea was not to pair them. That just happened. But you're always making that leap. But I think for the network, it was, they're putting a lot of money in. It's an enormous investment. There was an uncertainty as to whether this was going to work perfectly because that's universally true between the moment when you cast somebody and you see uh, what's going, what, what you have on screen. My old line producer, Pavlina Hatupas, always said, well, we built a car. We just have to see if it runs at this point. So that's, that's how you feel. But the Daniel Goldfarb loves telling the story and he tells it really well that the very first day, the very first thing we shot was the scene in the pilot in the kitchen where Julia had to cook breakfast for Paul and Sarah got on stage and she did it all herself. She cracked the eggs with one hand. She played the scene. She did all of it. And then when Charles McDougall yelled cut at the end of the scene, there was a kind of silence. And David said it was it felt as if I was in the presence of Julia. And that presence was not an act of mimicry or imitation. It was a process of a really wonderful actress embodying a character, creating a voice that is not the same, but somehow expresses similarly the way Julia's voice was used by her, understanding enough of the physicality of a woman who's six foot two and has to exist in the world at that height, although Sarah though tall is nowhere near that height. So she just becomes that person, which is what she does. And she has these eyes that are overwhelmingly expressive where you can actually see her thinking and often thinking about contradictory things at the same time. So it just, look, you'll make your own decision. It doesn't really matter. I'm the, you know, it's my show. I like it. This is a big surprise. Um, whether, how people will feel about it, I don't know. But I, I have no doubt that they'll look at Sarah and say that, the thing that made Julia Child so wonderful that brought the world to her, even if they didn't cook, is the thing that Sarah expresses, both in her comedy and her drama. Well, along those lines, I, I mean, writers and actors always talk about characters, have, how they have to be developed from the inside out. But with Julia Child, you're dealing with someone who was so larger than life and who had so many external things about her, from her height to her voice to her posture. Is there a way for you as a writer to use those things to your advantage um, when you're building her as a character so that they're not just, oh, these large cartoonish traits, but so that you can find a way to play off of them in some way? Uh, you know, it's, it, look, we didn't write scenes that were about her physicality. I mean, we wrote scenes that reflected the fact that she was a woman who had had to move through the world looking the way she did, taller than almost any man she, in, she interacted with in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, which is a much different deal than having to do it in 2022, although I'm sure not easy even now. We wrote dialogue for her that though it wasn't, again, not mimicking what Julia said, we don't quote Julia lines by and large, we're not trying to imitate her voice, I think had the, gave her the a kind of an essence of the, her felicity with language, but both she and Paul, by the way, were, were throwbacks to an era that, I mean, if you read their letters and their Valentine's cards that are more out of the Algonquin round table than present day, they just love language. They were always witty. They were, you know, they're, they're erudite people. And, um, and so we, we enjoyed writing that. And I, I assume that that helped Sarah eventually convey some of the essence of her, but I don't think we thought about it very much that way, to be honest. Um, I don't ever think about it consciously that way. 
Well, but you have to be consciously aware of how much she has been caricatured over the years. You know, you hear Julia Child, and on one hand, yes, you think Julia Child, but my mind goes to Dan Aykroyd almost immediately. So knowing that there's always going to be that in the background, how do you approach it? Well, look, I mean, it's always a job anyway, right? And so I'm saying, yes, it's harder with somebody who's been caricature, but the risk of creating a character is always part of the part of the job, uh, 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 the thing you want to avoid. One of the things that we had said in this is we're going to tell a pretty intimate, small-scale story. It's take eight episodes to talk about it, one year in her life. It's not a biopic, though it it references well-known moments in her career, at least for people who care about Julia Child, like her parents and I've been reading, and her writing a letter to GBH and, and suggesting her own show and eventually appearing on The French Chef. It is making the French chef. It is a show that is almost entirely about the things that happen behind closed doors in, in the intimacy of her relationship with her husband. The show is very much about the evolution of that marriage in her relationship with her best friend, Avis, her colleagues at GBH, her editor, Julia Jones. So we just kept focusing on little things and the little things are less likely to create caricature. We just never went back to many of those big moments. You know, there's a moment when a piece of chicken falls on the floor and Things like that. I mean, it's not that it, it's, we had to recreate a French chef that people understood, so it couldn't be in, an, in another world. But we just never went back to the tropes. Or at least we hope people feel that way. Um, that was not our intention, and we 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 told a much smaller story because that's what we had. And so I think that helps. You know, it ends up helping. You're not. It's the the, the biopic tropes are the things that get you in trouble. That you're going out there, a six foot tall woman, and coming back a star is is you know you're going to be a legend and you're going to change public television. One of the things we tried very hard to do was to never use hindsight. Um, the whole thing, for example, if and it, tell me if it's too long an, an answer. And you know we we created this moment between Julia Child and Betty Friedan um, at some point, and it's a very interesting conversation that they're going to have, and people will see it and. Um, it raises questions about Julia and her role in the world, and it, but it does it from the point of view of 1962 and not of 2022. We don't answer the question of what did Julia end up meaning because nobody knew at that point what she was going to mean. As you as you mentioned, the relationship with Julia and Paul, it, it isn't really just the core of the show. It, it is the show. Uh, but that's a role that was also recast. You originally had Tom Hollander. And then, as you mentioned, David Hyde Pierce ended up taking the role. And you say that uh, that he didn't read for it. So I'm curious how you knew that the chemistry was going to be right between those two people, because there's so much of the show that hinges on it. You didn't. We didn't know. We didn't. We had, we had, we had, there's no way to know that. I mean, the, the, the story of that very quickly is that um, the part was written with David in mind. Um, and but when we were originally going to produce the pilot, he wasn't available. And Tom, who's an amazing actor, was available and he was cast to play Paul Child. We all arrived in Boston to make the show uh, and the pandemic shut us down on, I think, the 13th of March. And we all went home having gathered just for a day or two and just shy of doing our cast reading. And not that long afterward, Tom, who contracted COVID at that point really early on, got sick on that trip or right as he went home, called us and said, I, I feel terrible about this. He's just a lovely guy, by the way. And he said, I, 
I'm not at the point right now where I can project my life forward five years and think of myself being so far away from home with everything that went on. It was a little bit of a, okay, the world's changing and we don't know what it means. It was going to change for years. He didn't know that then. We none of us didn't remember. We were really at a moment yep. of pretty scary uncertainty. Yeah, we all said, thought we would be out of the office for like two weeks. Exactly. And uh, exactly. So he just he just said in the, in the, in the nicest way, I just – the world changed on me, and I don't know that I can commit to being far away for a long, long time. And at that point, the part was available again, and we went to David, and and he was available at that point because the, the obligation, the theater obligation that he'd had, was also not was was going to get pushed. And so we offered him the part, and he said yes, and we put them together. But that's you know it's so often the case. I know that some places they you can do chemistry reads, but we didn't do it. We relied in all of these cases on all of these actors and their skill and it working it through. And whether that's successful or not, obviously, is in the eye of the beholder. We we think they they feel like they were that they're married, but um, but others will decide that. You know, Julia Child, as the show uh, depicts, is an instant gay icon, but she did go through her own journey that culminated in being an AIDS activist. And that obviously also included a lot of very notable homophobia along the way. Um, how did you guys want to approach that less savory side of her legend? Well, yes, it's a really interesting process she went through. She, she and Paul, I mean, on the one hand, one of her very closest friends is James Beard. Right. It's a, it's a gay man. And um, and at the same time, they are somewhat homophobic. And without giving away too much, we allow those things to exist side by side in contradiction with each other. We, one of the theories, by the way, for the show for us is that we show things that are true about the world. But we don't comment on them very much. And we allow her to be a contradiction. Julia is a contradiction constantly in all things. I mean, she she contradicts herself in interviews. She tells stories about the way things worked. And then she tells the exact opposite. So, And we just didn't avoid that. We just said, that's who she is. She is, there's a kind of, at one point she says she's to somebody, I'm, I know I'm messy and she is messy. Um, she's both forward thinking at points in time and she ends up becoming a, a, an extraordinary advocate for women's health. Um, the face of Planned Parenthood, we're way before that in this story, but it is a journey for her. She is in that sense, a kind of feminist, but she's never a political feminist. She doesn't see herself as a political figure. We just let that exist. And that's true also of, of the homophobia. I don't want to give it away because people haven't seen the episode. And I want to, I don't want to say, talk about scenes, but there are, there are scenes in which both her, her existing in the world, um, in, in, the, in the LGBTQ world, and then at the same time making fun of it, that's just Julia and Paul. And we're going to, and that's, and this is still the beginning of the story, by the way. So it is, we hope if we get to keep going, then it will get more complex, but it's the same thing, for example, with, I mean, it's about feminism, about racism, uh, uh, you know, the character of Alice Naaman experiences racism in the show. It exists. It's not a conversation that gets had. It is portrayed as a thing that is part of her life. It is, it is, a, it is a thing she deals with. She's a woman of color, a woman, a woman of color, a young woman of color in a world mostly of older white men. And everything, every step she takes demands that she be twice as good as they are in order to get half the credit. Um, and we just let that be in the story. We don't step back from it and comment on it very much. Uh, it's just the philosophy, the storytelling philosophy. 
and and obviously, you know, taking on such big topics and and letting these things exist and 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 coexist. So you're you're looking at at sexism and racism and everything else that, that's going on, homophobia. Yet we have you're the showrunner, and it's written by another white dude. Can you talk a little bit about what your writer's room looks like that helped you kind of shape this series and and explore some of these topics? Yeah, yeah. I should say, by the way, it's it's a comedy. Also, it is. Yeah, it is. This stuff has a kind of a. It is a. It, it, it's not particularly luxury. It's got a relatively light touch. It doesn't dim- dismiss any of this, but the experience of it is uh, is a comic story. Yeah, the, the, I mean, we had with us. Um, uh, four amazing women who wrote the show with us. Um, and yes, I think it's always interesting. It's like you all in in this day, I realize I realize in the WGA is like, as a, as an older white man, I can, I can help move things along, but I'm always part of the problem because I'm taking up the space in the sense that I, that, that I sort of inherited in some ways, because that's the way the world had worked and the guild now run by, by three women. And I think that's a, it, it's a very good thing I mean, and, and the world will move forward. But the same thing is true here is that we were asked just because of some of our expertise to do the show. We knew each other, but we knew that we weren't going to do it by ourselves as two men. And so we have a, we just have these four amazing writers in the first season, um, Eric Lopez and Ebony Booth and Natalia Tomeskin and Emily Bensinger. And the product, the show is a product of all of us. And then the, the directing staff was, uh, you know, we had eight episodes and Charles McDougall and Scott Ellis directed, but also Melia Maron, um, Erica Dutton and Sinead Lamarck. And so we, we, we tried very hard to make sure that we, we had many voices in, in the process of creating this. And we were deliberate about that. Also hiring the very best people, by the way. I mean, there's just, they're just great. And Going back to the, the character of Alice, so many of the characters in the series are real people with real names, but Alice is effectively taking the place of Ruth Lockwood, who was Julia Child's longtime producer in that capacity. Mm-hmm. When did you decide that you needed you needed specifically a black character who could reflect that experience, but that that was where you were going to create a character from whole cloth rather than sticking to the record? It was very early on in in the whole process. Look, we we the first thing is it's this is a this is a work of fiction, right? We are we we did a lot of research. We are reverent of Julia's memory and what she means as far as possible. We had the collaboration and help of the Julia Child Foundation all the way along to make sure we didn't stray too far from the path of getting the essence right of Julia. But within that context, Daniel and I have always talked about this as the Amadeus version of this, because Peter Schaffer or Amadeus said no one's in those rooms. But I stand by the story. This is what might have happened. So Julia, the story of Julia is mostly a story told in closed rooms that we don't know. So we made much of this stuff up, right? It's all, none of it changes the trajectory of her life, but it's a work of imagination. So the guy who runs GBH, Hunter Fox, is a is a creation. Um, he doesn't, there was a person who did that, but not that person. We knew for a fact that there were women of color who worked at GBH in the 1960s with Julia, not as many as there ended up being in 1976. It was almost all white men, but we thought that to tell a story in 2022, that was about the meaning of Julia 
and the meaning of change and of being yourself. I mean, all the themes of, I mean, there are obvious themes of cooking and celebrity and public television, the growth of public television, but it's also much about the growth of a modern marriage, about the remarkable women in different parts of their lives who, in particularly in second acts, took chances and did that because they were fully themselves, that we needed to embody that also in you know, one of those characters who actually existed at the time but wasn't well enough known to, to, to make the history books. And so we, we decided to tell the story of Alice Naiman, who stands in for all of that, but who becomes for us a fully realized character. She is not a version of somebody else. She is not like the black version of Ruth Lockwood. She is Alice Naiman and we give her a backstory and we, although she's one of a number of characters, she has family, she has romantic interests, she has, you know, she's, she gets her job, you know, she gets her credits taken from her. She has relationships in the office. She ends up having relationships with the people in and around Julian, not just Julia herself, for example, Avis Devoto. So we, 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 we tried to fully create a woman and what that experience might have been like in 1962, 1963. And we stand by that. It's, 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 it's a work of imagination. There's, there are biographies of Julia if you need it. This is, um, this is not a biography. It's not a biopic. It is a fable about themes that, that are, remain relevant based around a woman who seems to have power, has power in the American conscience, which really helps us. Many of my favorite scenes in the show are are sort of the scenes that are focused on the logistics of shooting the French chef and specifically the logistics of shooting food and the act of cooking. What culinary aspects of your show produced the biggest challenges? And did you have any favorite ways you were able to cheat on the cooking and food that maybe Julia Child wouldn't have had back in the day? Well, we had a full, amazing kitchen. So Julia made that stuff at home and, and right there. And she worked with Avis and, and, uh, you know, the, the friends who, who gathered to, to make this in a kind of amateur way. But Christine Tobin, who was our food stylist and all the people who worked with her had an enormous professional kitchen on the stage where they, they made dozens and dozens of everything that we ate. So every time we had a new cake, somebody had to cut into a Queen of Sheba cake. It could get cut into fresh. Also, by the way, leaving a lot of food for a lot of people, which made us very happy in quite the same way, I think, as the, the crew of the French chef was able to do it. So we, ha- we didn't have to invent anything. We had all that invented. But all that stuff is true about Julia. You know, she's not the first cooking show that ever existed, but she's the first really successful one. And she lays the groundwork for so much that happened later. We talk about it explicitly. How do you make a, a three-hour dish in 30 minutes? How do you show food inside a pot when it's, I mean, how do you do any of those things? The idea of sitting down and eating your own food. Um, all of that stuff gets developed there. And it was part of the fun was just watching them come up with these ideas as, and dramatize the, the creation of, a, I guess, a new art form in a sense that now is ubiquitous on American television, but owes itself in large part to Julia Child. The thing that doesn't isn't true anymore is that, of course, and there were things that people love about Julia, is that that was mistakes at all. One of the great innovations of Russ Marash is he said, we don't cut, we don't edit. We show the good stuff and the bad stuff. And Julia was perfectly happy to be a success and be a failure on TV. And that, as she says explicitly, kind of opened, uh, made her accessible to to people all over. And, and it's, it gives her power. And she's, she's truly herself as opposed to being in any way airbrushed. I loved all the food scenes. It, it made me very, very hungry and wish that I was actually able to cook. So, um, which 
I've never wanted to be able to cook in my life. So this was a fair, really fun one to watch in that regard. Um, one of the weird things for us, by the way, is, you know, we made this show before the pandemic. We did not think, did not anticipate that people would spend two years locked in their own homes, mostly having, you know, cooking together. So cooking has changed in some ways. The meaning of food and making your own food in American life has actually changed in the time between when we started doing it and when we aired the show. HBO, absolutely, HBO Max said, we want the porn, the food, the porn. We want the food to be like food porn. Um, we want it to be sensual and a kind of Tom Jonesian experience of gorging, which the childs did. You know, they were they were gourmands and they they would sate themselves until they could not move. Did you guys have extra food that you donated to like shelters or anything like that when you were uh, in production? I don't know whether there was much extra beyond that. It was not that. It's not that much volume. I don't. It's not. And and there are there are rules about that stuff. So all the stuff ends up getting used. You know what I mean? We're we're cooking half of it. So I I, I don't know. We're not like a restaurant. We didn't. It's not that. It's not right. that much volume. Right. So if we didn't, it's it, it's. And I don't know the answer. It's not out of care. It's um, it, it it's out of the fact that we we had a lot of half eaten stuff. Um, which is hard to pass on. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I do want to talk about the society. We mentioned it, you know, at the beginning of the interview, but, you know, from what I heard at the, at the time, you were in the midst of casting season two when Netflix reversed its renewal decision. Obviously, this wave of unrenewals was not isolated to you guys. It, it was a thing that was big, one of the big storylines to come out of the pandemic. Um, some things were because of scheduling, some because, you know, like how do you film a show like on becoming a God in Central Park at Showtime, which is set at a theme park at a time when theme parks are closed and you don't know how this is going to do and there's pre-vaccines and all this other stuff. But what did Netflix ex explain to you? Like, how was that, you know, how did they explain the decision to cancel it to you well, as you're like in the middle of all of this work? They didn't say very much. I mean, we understood that we were in trouble. We were, we were both we could have been in trouble. It was a show with large crowd scenes with lots of young actors. Um, it needed to be shot in summer and winter, and we were heading toward winter. I think they were very concerned about how long after the first season, the second season would eventually air. Would we have to wait till another cycle? But that wasn't really much of a conversation. It was a little, it was, look, it was, it was, I would say, one of the hardest moments in my career because we had, we had fully written that show, you know, the second season. We had been ready to shoot it twice. We had our, our production. We were building sets. Um, production had moved there. We were getting ready to move cast in at that point. It happened very suddenly and and not with a lot of explanation. But what do you do? I mean, that's so that's so crazy, because when you look at like Stranger Things is coming back in May after three years and I get it that, you know, the society isn't. Stranger Things, but it was no slouch in season one, at least, you know, judging by the whatever gobbledygook ratings, net, you know, Netflix was using at the time. Um, but that that is so surprising that they would think, be concerned about the timing between between seasons. I guess you just have to ask them. It's just, it's hard for me to answer because it was it was just a decision that came down, and it's it was not a reversible decision. And it was devastating for a lot of, you know, there are hundreds of people who, whose jobs went away. And obviously, you're right. We had we had a very, very, the show did very well. It had a very large fan base. Um, it was not Stranger Things. So it was not an inevitability. But it's it's the question you'd have to ask them. It, I just live with the, the sadness of it, but without, a, you know, not a full storyline to tell you about what, what ended up happening. We just, we never got together. We just said goodbye. Well, but you... You have the 
you know, you, you get the call. I assume it was a call and not an email or a text because, you know, they're classy people, maybe. Um, but <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but is there a stages of grief thing where you, where you tried being like, if if we cut the these 15 crowd scenes, if we trim around this way, if we only use this set, were, were there bargaining attempts to try figuring out ways you could do this? Or was it simply untenable? Just from the game. That, that really happened before because we were we were about to go into production and there were lots of conversations about the way in which we could make it work. You know, had the at that point, the heart of COVID, there were conversations. What order do you shoot things in? Do you shoot the big the big set pieces first or last? What do you do about the sex scenes? All of that kind of stuff. What do we do about do we do all of our exteriors first because before the weather changes, so we block shoot the entire season? All of those conversations we're having um, in the weeks beforehand. And then they said, no, that's it. So, I mean, I really liked the show and I really, really wanted to get answers to some of the questions. And if you mention the society even casually online, you can get hundreds of people tweeting at you, me too, me too, I want to know. Given that you had an entire season that you had already written, I know you've done some interviews where you've kind of hinted at some of the things that were coming in the second season, but have you given any consideration to any way that you could get that story out into the world, be it a book, um, a an imaginary movie, a comic, anything? Animation. Yeah. We're very close to finishing the deal on a graphic novel for both the first season and the second season. So, so yes, that's, that's, we've been working on that for a long, 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 long time. Um, and, and it's uh, Miley Malloy, who's um, one of the writers on the show, who's a great novelist. She was a great novelist before you should read Miley's books and short stories, Half in Love and um, Family Daughter and Both Ways are the Only Way I Want it. it uh, she's amazing. And she's going to write the graphic novel based on the seasons of, the society does that's great that, does that then contextualize it as a, a two-season story or are you imagining it as something that once it becomes a graphic novel could be ongoing volume two forever and ever volume three oh, yeah yeah we, we we haven't even we haven't talked about that right now what we were able to to give our our publisher is obviously all the story for the first season and then every single script for the second season um the conversation about whether it would go longer than that i i think it's it's got to be for them that's a big commitment for them and that and we're very grateful if it does well i guess there can be a conversation about whether there's more we don't end the story you know, it's it's it, 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 we didn't end the story in the second season uh, in the television show. I mean, we have there's a big twist in it, but um, but it doesn't end it. So, yes, I think it's it's open to that. But I don't know the economics of graphic novels and what it takes. How many people need to read them in order to be asked to go back in and and, and create more? Um, do you know so, what do you guys have a release date or a publisher or any of that stuff yet? We do, we do have a publisher. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not because this contract's not completely signed. We are really at the end, uh, the almost the 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 one yard line. We're at the one yard line of this. So, I can't say it out loud. We have a great graphic novel uh, publishing house um that we're working with and then Mike's got to get to work. And these things take a little while. You know, the graphic novels take a long time apparently. I don't I mean <laughs> Um, and I do just really quickly want to go back uh, and and talk a little bit big picture. Now that you're very far removed from all all of the packaging of it all, um, you know now that so many that all the agencies have signed the code of conduct. How have you seen that affect writers now that packaging is being phased out? Obviously, you know that the top 
showrunners, the Shondas, Berlandis and Ryan Murphy's of the world are all getting their their nine figure deals. But how is it affecting, you know, the middle and low range writers? So it's, I, I am not deflecting this question. I promise you, Leslie, I'm not in the guild at this point. I'm not in the guild leadership. I don't have access to that. That's a completely fair question that you should talk to Meredith Steam about. Um, I just don't know that stuff. I mean, I and but just even as a showrunner who's out there, you know, in the world with talking to other writers and producers and what what you're hearing from your experience and even from your your, the staff writers who worked on Julia. um, I think there are I think it is a it is a better world in which our agents are fully aligned with our interests and that I, I, I think that that has proved to be true. I think it's also true that there are changes that have happened since that time that are affecting writers' income that need to be dealt with. So there are limitations on what anyone can do um, in worlds of many rooms and endless pilot development and things like that. That and and also um, where span protections are not. This is just me, by the way. Where span protections have strong limitations, and so people can still be stretched out for a long time. So I, I think the advantage of that is. Of ending of ending packaging is real. The fact that there are other challenges is also real. There's lots of. I don't want to get into the stories of all of the ways in which I think people have begun to talk to each other more in the business because of you know the number of producers who have said I met writers I never met before because I was able to reach out and talk to them and I, I'm doing projects with them and writers as well. Things that were bottlenecked through the agencies, but. I, I, as I said, I am not in the guild and it is not my intention or my business to stoke any flames there between everyone. I know that there are, you know, in the information sharing, that's part of the, the deal that that, you know, from my understanding, that's very beneficial to writers and that agencies have, I don't, I can't speak about all of them, that agencies have been good partners in that way. And, but, but this is, you know, I'm in an awkward position here because I am, I, I, like any other writer, I cannot speak on behalf of the Writers Guild or broadly the experience of uh, of writers, and that's yeah. it's not an evasion. It's just no. It's just. I mean, I was asking from your from your vantage point. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. and, and just wrapping up on on this thread, did you wind up going back to your to your agent and your or your agency? They said they didn't want me. Uh, who they was said, that? They said they didn't want CAA. So they didn't want me back. Mike Rosenfeld was my agent. Um, he's a lovely guy, and uh, he said. Um, they are not interested in having me here. So um, it's okay. I mean, they can, they, I, I didn't, I didn't mean it personally, but uh, they can take it personally and that's okay. The truth is I, I probably don't want an agency that's not fully committed to, you know, seeing me succeed. So that's, that's the way it was. I, a lot of people had lots of things have happened to them over the last bunch of years, both in the agency campaign and COVID. I'm really lucky. I'm really happy. Um, and, uh, and Mike and I will be friends for the, I assume the rest of our lives. So no agent right now. So you have manager? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I signed with manager. manager I decided yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't going to, um, I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't think that I, WME was likely to be more, <laughs> more <laughs> yeah. about me and ICM was no longer a possibility. It just seemed to me like at that point, I wasn't going to worry about it too much. And so I'm, I'm an anonymous and I just started there. And um, I'm very happy to be there. And mostly, I just have very, very little interest in refighting old wars. You know, it is, it, we did what we did, and the guild showed itself to be 
remarkable and it's and it's you know even though there was some rightly so uh, some dissension in its eventual unity and its ability to stick up for its own rights and that moves me when I think about that. The guild's really very, very special in that way. Um, and now we have lots of other things to deal with. And, and you know, I mean, writers do. Uh, and, 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 and directors and crews and everybody who works in this business as it gets increasingly consolidated and siloed. And, and you know, so it's, uh, there are challenges ahead. Absolutely. And, you know, we do like to wrap up these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? Oh, what have I been watching? So, um, well, one thing I have to say that I really, really loved is I love the great. Um, I want to put in a good word for the great. I love the great. I love uh, somebody somewhere. And so I think that's really, really fantastic. What else have I watched? Uh, um, the dropout I'm in the middle of, and it's been great. Um, I'm in the middle of the Gilded Age. I'm in the middle of a bunch of different, in a, in a bunch of different things. It's a little tough period for me to watch a lot right now because I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to get started on the second season. But um, there's so much really. I haven't seen Atlanta yet. It's just you know, I can't wait for all of this, all of this stuff. Um, so wait, you're already writing season two of Julia? Where we are in anticipation we do not have a pickup but we are breaking season two so that we can again not take too long to get back in case so hbo won't pick us up until they see how we do which is i completely get but they were they showed enough faith in us which we really appreciate um they really are very good i know it's, it's you know this moment we've just had a they're they're a very wonderful place to work um, they are, they're supportive both on the creative side and the production side. I mean, I've had a lot of places I, I, I really like FX is amazing and there are other places and I don't want to leaving people out. doesn't mean that I don't believe in it. Netflix was the creative people in Netflix. I think were were really good partners. Um, but HBO's HBO max has been, it's not an easy show to make, you know, to say we want to make a tiny little show about, even though it's Julia Child about a woman in 1962 and 1963 and they, they believed in it and, um, and they still do, but now the audience will have to show the same thing. So as always, we just keep our fingers crossed and, and keep moving forward. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us this week. We're super happy to have you on the show. It was fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. The first three episodes of Julia debuted on March 31st on HBO Max, with subsequent episodes due every Thursday. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, well, you just heard our interview with Chris Kaiser about Julia. Marvel's latest entry on Disney Plus, Moon Knight, launched this week. CBS goes bowling with How We Roll. Apple debuts Slow Horses. Amazon launches The Outlaws. Dan, what you got? <sighs> too much, too much TV, Leslie. Too much TV. Really? I hadn't heard anyone say that before. <sighs> okay, so let's start, I guess, with uh, with Moon Knight, which has already launched, and people seem to be enjoying it, which I guess is nice. Um, <laughs> I, I found this new Marvel entry to be more of an acting showcase for Oscar Isaac than particularly effective as a character study of um, an actual newly introduced Marvel character. I, I think that it is, you know, when it is trying to be sort of wacky, Oscar Isaac's a lot of fun and he's doing that 
very, very silly British accent that people were making fun of in the trailer. And it doesn't become a better accent the more he does it. It just becomes kind of more consistent and you become accustomed to it and you you accept that it's a a strange and amusing thing that he's doing and that's fine. And that it also is reflective of the character's mental illness. Unfortunately, when it becomes a story of dissociative identity disorder, it to me, it is significantly less rigorous, inventive, surreal, fun, interesting than FX's Legion, which did a lot of the same things also under a Marvel banner. So, uh, you know, not... It, there, there really just isn't enough character work here to make what Oscar Isaac is doing is entirely justified, but it's still fun to watch at all points. You know, going with my own personal peccadillos, I, I was annoyed by the way that the character's uh, Jewish past is erased for the TV series. It's simply not a part of what uh, Jeremy Slater and the, the TV team wanted to delve into and it's a choice and I have a choice to feel like it's something that's missing because it's something that actually would have anchored the character to something as opposed to how he is now, which feels a little bit kind of crazy and unmoored and all of that. But it's, you know, it's not bad and you can see hints of how this character could be well used. And there are parts of it that are fun. I've seen four of six episodes and the third episode is sort of fun Indiana Jones type adventure. And the fourth episode is getting towards Legion territory at times. You know, it's, it's good. Not great would be what I would say. Um, I, I don't think it's as immediately entertaining as uh, WandaVision was. I don't think it's as fun as the second half of the season of Hawkeye was, but it's probably better than where, say, Falcon and the Winter Soldier was after the first chunk of its episodes. So, you know, who knows? Uh, earlier, I mentioned that the creator of Slow Horses is none other than Will Smith. Um, in this case, it is the Will Smith who worked with Armando Iannucci on Veep and on Thick of It. And this is an adaptation of the first book in Mick Heron's series about an offshoot of MI5 that is basically a satellite office where they stick spies who have made big mistakes, but maybe not mistakes so bad that they have to be either put out to pasture or, you know, killed. Uh, but basically they put them there so that they get so frustrated by doing nothing that they eventually ideally quit. And the office is run by Jackson Lamb, character played by Gary Oldman, in a role that very much is intended to communicate with his work as George Smiley in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, because it is very much a, um, a droll version of the Jean Le Carré spy formula. Um, it starts a little slow because you have to get accustomed to the inactivity of this world, but then it becomes a good deal more entertaining. I thought the second half of the season, especially any time you can get Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas uh, uh, together on screen at the same time, that's a lot of fun. You, you want to watch that. And there are some good supporting performances. I always am amused to see Olivia Cook speaking with her actual accent, for example. Uh, she's done so much time being American that seeing her get to be 
British is entertaining and fun. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. It's, it's also only six episodes, um, which in this particular case actually doesn't feel horribly padded. Um, so yay for them on that one. Um, yeah, so I, I mostly enjoyed Slow Horses. I think it's, as I said in my review, it's actually an interesting companion text to Severance in terms of horribly depressing workplaces with dark humor underneath the surface. Um, I don't think it's as good as Severance. I don't think it's as good as Pachinko. But I do think that if you have Apple TV because you wanted to watch Severance and you wanted to watch Pachinko, Slow Horses is absolutely a thing that you could watch. Um, I didn't talk about The Girl from Plainville last week. The first couple episodes premiered this week on Hulu. And it's it's just a reminder for the most part of what a tremendous actress um, Elle Fanning has become in, in short order. It is... The, the whole series is designed to make you uncomfortable. It's it's designed to make you feel bad about social media, to make you feel bad about the ways that teens today interact, to make you feel bad about the casual cruelty that a younger generation takes as a matter of course. And it definitely is hard to watch at times. I, I feel like it probably is hard to watch in exactly the ways that it intends to be. It is not the kind of show that I can imagine anybody wanting to binge down the road in a however many episodes it is eight or ten episode run i have to assume it's eight because ten would be way too much uh but but i think it actually probably does benefit from a week-to-week airing because a lot of crazy stuff happens in it if you know the story there was the hbo documentary a couple years ago etc it's a good way to kind of stretch out the incredulity rather than causing you to cringe deeper and deeper and deeper um, which I think it probably would cause you to do if you binged it. So, uh, yeah, and I, I feel like those are those are the things. Oh, uh, uh, Ken Burns' Ben Franklin premieres on, uh, on Monday. Podcast guest Ken Burns. Baseball conversant Pen, uh, Ken Burns. Uh, I, I would say that, that Ben Franklin is probably lesser Ken Burns. I think that he is better at this point when he can have more voices in the room, not the creative room, though that obviously helps, but when he can actually showcase more individual stories, I feel like this is kind of a, it, it's sort of a four hour dramatization of Walter Isaacson's biography, basically, um, with Mandy Patinkin reading lots and lots of famous Ben Franklin quotes. It's definitely not bad and it's interesting. It is just, I would say, lesser Ken Burns, but it's also only four hours. So it's, you know, it's not a 10 hour commitment. So if you are interested in Ben Franklin, it's interesting enough. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's all I got from now, Leslie. <laughs> well, that's plenty. And you can hear more of Dan's weekly recommendations by subscribing to THR's Now See This newsletter, which comes out every Friday afternoon. You can also bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews and keep up with the latest TV reviews from all of THR's wonderful critics. Well, my friend, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you what works or what doesn't work. Let us know. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. 
Until next week, Dan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.